You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Martin, here we are, early July 2021. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks, Carl. How are you? Is uh, stuff busy in your life? Yep, I think never been busier. The uh, the world seems to have stabilised somewhat out of the crisis of COVID and now into, um, I don't know, more, an ex- more of an accelerated way of operating. We're sort of finding ourselves needing to deliver a lot of culture work and organisational change in a, in a short time frame, but large sort of multi-year investments just at a different speed. So... I don't know. We're adjusting quite well and enjoying it. Oh, that's good. I mean, it certainly is an interesting time in the, the life of the world, isn't there? We've got all sorts of funny things going on in this last couple of weeks with different approaches to lockdown and, and vaccine confusion and ambiguity. It certainly seems to be a time of a need for some clear messages and consistency between leaders. I, I'm sure that would be an issue with some of your clients in the business world, wouldn't it? Well, the biggest thing in that, with respect to that is people now seem to have the right to be people. So in terms of leaders, the change in leadership and the change in um, way that leaders are leading, that generally we're seeing uh, people be more effective because they sort of know that the corporate coma that they were in prior to COVID where you sort of were, were showing up at work and, and a leader and it was somewhat you know egotistical at times and leaders got quite excited about their title. Um, you know, I think they're being found out, and I think we're starting to see a whole new gamut of leaders here that are there to do the right thing. Their their role is to is to serve and shape the organisation, and, and if they're not doing that, they're really not there anymore. Well, it certainly seems like a, a time uh, where the focus is on the need for clear leadership and people that are authentic and show that they can care about and have concerns about their people. Building mm. trust seems to be important and moving on to new agendas that are emerging out of this. Is that is that how you'd see it? Yeah, both those things. The sense of trust, because it's never been never been more required. People can trust that they people should return to the workplace, trust that their leader has their best interest at heart. You know, we were forever having this conversation around is the focus of an organisation on employees, on shareholders or on customers? And it's always those three stakeholders that were always in balance and there'd be um, different times, different focuses. But at the moment, I think the right thing to do is really focus on your people. And so focusing on your people so they're serving the customer better, delivering to shareholder has to be the right um Right formula. Well, that's um, that's been a big issue in our last couple of podcasts episodes, isn't it? And in interviews. I mean, it's great to have the leader of Universities Australia as the peak body on the podcast in episode thirty last week, and this week's guest couldn't be better in following up from that. The deputy of of UA and the vice chancellor of QUT, Margaret Shield. Maybe we should give her a listen. I'd enjoy that. Our guest today on HEDEX is Professor Margaret Shealeo, who's led QUT in Brisbane as its Vice-Chancellor now for three and a half years after roles before that as Provost at the University of Melbourne and the CEO of the Australian Research Council. Margaret's also recently taken the role of Deputy Chair of our Peak Body Universities Australia. Margaret, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you very much, Martin. It's a pleasure. Great. And, and Margaret, leading QUT as one of Australia's largest and fastest growing research universities in, in the toughest of times that there's probably ever been to be a VC must be quite a responsibility. I, I, I wonder if you can start off our conversation by saying 
What do you see are the biggest challenges that QUT in particular is now facing in 2021? And what are you and your colleagues at QUT doing to respond to those particular challenges? So, Martin, um, like all Australian universities, we spent last year mostly in a, in a mode of responding to the immediate. So initially it was to move our material online to enable us to comply with all the health regulations around access to campus and also for students who were trapped out offshore. And then the second half of the year, we, we looked at what we could do to uh, look at our cost base, in particular, what that might look like going forward with fewer international students, both in the short term and in the long term. And so we, like many other Australian universities, embarked on a on a change process to look at how we could be more nimble and take costs out in a, in a way that didn't impact on our, our sort of long-term future. So we did that last year and we did it in a way that focused particularly on our professional staff and services. So that was challenging because we were only working with one part of our workforce largely, though obviously academics were impacted. And the second part of that is that when you go through a change like that in the time of uncertainty, you've obviously got to go through some rebuilding. We're in that rebuilding phase now of we've been through uh, the change. We've taken, a, uh, I think, sufficient cost to put us in a good position moving forward, and now we're rebuilding. And in the process of that, and that involves not just rebuilding um, structures, but also morale and, and culture and, and, you know, everything in the new uh, and arrangements and new structures we've put forward. And at the same time, we're looking at our strategy going forward because obviously that was developed in uh, 2019 and 2021 and beyond is going to be very different. The, the difference in um, how 2021 will be from 2019 was thrown in sharp contrast to me listening to our most recent minister's speech at the UA conference, which I, I believe you stepped in as deputy chair to host that... Um, relatively short notice. And uh, Minister Tudge raised a number of priorities and maybe new opportunities for the sector. Maybe we might see them like that. And I wonder what your view is of how well prepared we are in the sector as a whole to respond to some of the issues that he raised. Firstly, of his push to switch more to research commercialization. Are we well placed for that, do you think? So the push, to, I mean, first of all, research commercialization isn't going to address the funding shortfall and that's coming as a result of the lack of international student revenue, whereby we've diverted some of the um, excess margin of international student revenue into research investment. That is not going to be replaced by commercialising our research. You know, you look at the numbers, you look at the risks, you look at the dollars that come from that. That is not, not a viable alternative that research is going to replace what has been an incredibly viable and um, and profitable international student uh, uh, education market. That being said, it's really important to ensure that our research does reach the end users and does um, profit uh, society in more broadly than in terms of dollars, but in terms of getting um, uh, uh, research to where it's needed, whether it's vaccine research, whether it's the research that um, QUT has led around uh, the airborne transmission or whether it's, you know, development of hydrogen pilot plants, getting that out 
as part of our future to, to where it needs to be is really critical. And so I think the best, the benefit around research commercialization is actually ensuring that it reaches the end user. Okay, another opportunity he raised, which I imagine he might see as a the different sort of alternative in this area was um, of offshore and online international students, maybe the numbers of those enrolled in Australian universities rising. He, he used the figures of 10 million students in 10 years time, which is a phenomenal rate of growth. How, how well is the sector prepared to rise to that sort of challenge, do you think? Well, Martin, it depends on the market. And as you know, um, from your time in universities, there is um, very a range of different reasons why stu international students want to access the Australian higher education system. It's not just the qualifications. Sometimes it's the, it's the experience of living and working in Australia for a period after they um, have received their education. And we know, we've learned from COVID that uh, students don't actually enjoy the online experience for extended periods, it, particularly in the early, early years. So in the undergraduate years, where social, the social dimension of, the, of education is really important, students actually want to interact. And, and where online comes into its own is in uh, graduate, postgraduate, postprofessional education. So, I'm not sure where the big market online is for those uh, areas where 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 online is, is most you know is is most uh, useful and most valued. I think just looking at the current um, the way the students have responded in the current crisis is those that were enrolled with us have stayed online uh, pretty much. Uh, where they have access to the appropriate internet and time zones and so on, um, and but a number have not, and and that's very dependent on the, on the on the countries, including some of the countries where you might think there might be the opportunity for growth, and and the Indian subcontinent would be one of those. So I, it's not it's not only that we may not be necessarily be prepared for that um, in the numbers that the minister is um, talking about. It's whether there's a receiver, whether there really is a market there. And, you know, we saw in the early days of the introduction of MOOCs that there was this prediction that, you know, universities were going to go the way of newspapers and that once the material was available online, then, then there wouldn't be a need for universities. And, and that hasn't panned out. It has MOOCs do a certain, um, have a certain value, massive open online courses, as do all online education. But... It's not a replacement for what we do. And I don't believe necessarily that that, again, is going to be a panacea for, for uh, Australian higher education into the future. It's a part of our portfolio, but it's not, it can't be a replacement for having students from all countries here in Australia and experiencing the Australian higher education um, and the value of that. So um, you said that you're leading a refresh of the QUT blueprint strategy with your colleagues at the moment, um, this side of uh, the, the biggest pandemic that we've experienced in our lifetimes. I wonder if you can tell us where you've got to in pursuing that and resetting the university for the very different real world that we're currently in and are likely to see in the future. 
And maybe in doing so, comment on how well QUT is positioned for those two areas of opportunity that Minister Tudge sees as a priority, or indeed other priorities that you're working on with your colleagues as part of this strategy reset. So in terms of the commercialisation research or research translation um, or engagement with industry, um, engagement with end users, however you broadly want to uh, frame that, QUT is incredibly well positioned. It has been always our part of our research strategy to engage with partners, be they industry, government um, or other universities. And one of the things that QUT has done from at least possibly the last 10 years and probably earlier is we've consciously taken our research further along the translation pathway than, than universities traditionally do. And so if I take the examples of hydrogen and batteries, we're building pilot plants, we're building prototypes uh, before we necessarily engage with industry. And so we're closer to industry before we even start the engagement. And that's quite a different strategy to many places. And it's certainly one that I think is going to position us well into the future. So we're going to do more of that in different areas. So using um, what we're doing in clean energy, as an example, in med tech, taking things much closer to industry before we attempt to commercialise them. That's, so that's one thing. The second thing is to have your, your team sorted and the roles in, in the team sorted so that academics um, have got the support they need to engage with industry or to commercialise their um, IP or, or to negotiate contracts and partnerships. And what we've done here at QUT there is position our business development team to have um, industry engagement, commercialisation of research and philanthropy and uh, fundraising because all those three things often overlap in different ways. So we're pretty happy with the way we've done that, positioned that under um, Mark Harvey, who you would know, our VP of Business Development. So we've got both the mindset and the structures to support that. So that'll, that'll be a key part of our strategy going forward. We have partnerships online, both with um, OES and, and um, through some of the work that we're doing internally. So, you know, we're moving along at, not, we're not the leader of the pack there, but we're, we're moving there at a steady pace. Where I think we're positioning ourselves differently to others is that in the restructure that we did last year, what I did was we moved away from the separation of research and education. So moved away from the model of taking funds from one part of the university and investing research in another part. And tried to align our teaching and research efforts as carefully and as closely as we can. And that'll be a key part of our uh, strategy going forward, as will some of the things that we're reinforcing things that are part of, have been part of the um, QT's history, such as our commitment to inclusion, the recent emphasis on empowering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and uh, a number of those elements will also feed into the strategy as well. And after all, we are also a university of technology. So underpinning everything is how technology can impact on, uh, on the future and um, uh, the health and well-being of our citizens going forward. 
So that's a, that's a very um, interesting tour through the opportunities that I've raised and others that you see and, and, and the variety of other issues that you see as priorities at the moment. I wonder if bringing that to a head then, you can further articulate to us what the essence of what you see QUT's strategy for the future will be. And in doing so, perhaps also outline what steps you might take to communicate this to and gain the support of your staff and students and all of your key stakeholders so that everyone puts their, their weight behind it. What, what in essence is QUT's next, next steps going to be and how will you get support to it? So the, the, the University for the Real World is both um, a tagline, but it, it's well and truly entrenched in every, everything that we do and how we look at uh, both our teaching and research. And it, you know, it's a brilliant strategy that was here well before my time, but it's well, it's, it's not just a, a tagline, it's, it's completely entrenched in the way people think. And so what we're trying to do in, in formulating our new strategy is think about what the real world might need into the future and what kind of skills, what kind of citizens, what kind of educational programs. We're further along that, as I said, in the research side than we are in some of our our teaching areas and so what we're looking at is a curriculum refresh not for the whole curriculum but for the elements that we think might define a QUT graduate going forward to ensure that they continue to be prepared for the real world and so it's not just about areas where we've traditionally been strong like work integrated learning or, or ensuring that we have industry professionals or placements but thinking beyond that into um, what the real world needs going into the future. And so we're not planning to redo everything in, in our refresh of the strategy, the vision, the university for the real world, the way, the commitment to aspiration, inclusion, uh, Indigenous Australians, uh, our essence is tech, a technology university, they're all, all given. We're just really, most of the work will be in the curriculum and also in our um, engagement and who we partner with to deliver on that vision. Okay. Oh, well, you, you mentioned earlier in the interview, um, Margaret, that um, some of the opportunities that you see might be different from other universities. I wonder to what extent you believe it's important that QUT has a unique or distinctive strategy compared with those of your other Australian competitors. Is that important to you? So in terms of um, being different, we, uh, QT is actually quite different in a number of ways to, to other Australian universities. I mean, the strategy that um, Peter Coldrake and others followed in terms of how we positioned ourselves in terms of the balance of our undergraduates, our graduates and our international cohort is, is different. It was um, at some part times viewed as being conservative, but, but it's clearly stood as, um, in it, put us in a good position going forward. We, um, and that's in terms of our international profile and the mix of that international profile versus domestic students. We, uh, we're serving a different, a different community here in Queensland to, to other um, states. We've got, you know, Queensland's huge, as you know, and ensuring that we get access and provide access to the best possible opportunities for the whole of Queensland, not just the southeast, is, is critical. And that's challenging because of the 
you know, the tyranny of distance and the cost of moving moving to the city. And so, so that's a difference. But also, uh, really, I think leveraging that that engagement with the real world, with the business community, with with industry, with the practitioners, has been a key feature of QUT in the past. And it need that difference, that sort of practical, pragmatic uh, difference that QUT uh, approaches things with, is got to be a key part of what we do going forward. We're not radically different to other universities, as you know, uh, um, and uh, that Australian universities have many characteristics in common, but we need to continue to, I think, leverage our strengths. Okay, and you're leveraging strengths in many ways by leading QUT through quite a significant organisational change that's been working through over the last few months. And it seems to me that you're redefining structure, strategy, as we've talked about, and your leadership and the leadership team that you have around you as you've commented on after quite a, a long-standing period of continuity in, in direction. I wonder if you can comment on whether you feel the staff, the students, your fellow leaders, how well are they adapting to the way that QUT is being shaped for its next phase, do you feel? So um, I'm probably not the best judge of that, but look, we did some really challenging things last year to move quickly on the structural side. And that obviously uh, felt very different to, to change that had happened here in the past, which had typically been more, more um, moved a bit more slowly. But of course, we were responding to quite um, rapidly changing circumstances. But, you know, we quite consciously called the Blueprint 6, the Blueprint 6, because we were building on those very strong foundations of the past that laid by Dennis Gibson and Peter Coldrake. And the, and the continuity of that, you know, to have a 30-year-old university that had only had two vice-chancellors has meant that we've been able to follow a very strong and, and you know, good trajectory without um, chopping and changing. And the example of the, the, the commitment to the real world is, is an example of that. I think the uh, where we have made the biggest change was to move away from the institute model of research and, and wind those two institutes into the faculties and then to create uh, five faculties from, from, from that. And I, I think that was unexpected probably. And, and I, you know, as much as we tried to explain it, uh, it also felt, I think for some areas of the university that given I had said when I arrived that, you know, restructuring faculties wasn't my preferred option. I think there was a sense in some of the faculties, particularly, you know, education, creative industries, maybe law as well, the smaller ones, that they wouldn't be subject to that kind of restructuring. But unfortunately, when you look at how to deliver services the most in the most efficient way, having five roughly equally sized faculties makes a huge difference in how you can manage and, and facilitate support across the university. So I think. There's the loss of identity for some of the faculties that have merged into the larger faculties. And then, then there's just the personal challenge and cost of losing colleagues, not, uh, you know, who've taken either options to leave the university or had positions made redundant or contracts not renewed. And that's awful. You know, you've been working with people, you don't want to see others impacted by the change. And so 
we've got to ensure that we continue to show the kind of care that we need, um, to, that we should and continue to show as an institution for those who have left us and those who've stayed with us and who are, are still suffering some, some level of, um, you know, angst because of the change and how quickly it happened. Well, thanks for being so open with us about that. That's, um, that's a really interesting explanation and comment on, on that, that sort of challenge that all universities are going through at the moment, I'm sure. And um, maybe just changing topic a little bit slightly there, although other issues that I think are common to all universities. Two of our recent guests on HEDEX have been Marcia Devlin talking about sexism and Lynn Bassetti, who's been describing incivility as a form of smart bullying by academics of their leaders. And I, I know, Margaret, you've taken quite an interest in the work of both of these leaders from our sector, our sector for some time. And I wonder if you can help us get a picture of where QUT is up to with regard to those issues of culture in our university, of sexism and and um, incivility as a form of smart bullying and, and what you're doing to address those cultural issues that both of them raise at QUT. So, um, you know, I am interested because it's, um, I mean, in some, particularly the incivility and the smart bullying is, is it, I think, um, makes it difficult for us um, to attract uh, leaders and to in key roles as heads of school and deans and so on. So we've got to be ensuring that we're we're supporting and backing those who are asking to take those roles on. So that's a particular interest of mine. Um, in relation to uh, sex, sexism and sexual harassment and so on within universities, the I've been very clear about my um, commitment to gender equality and also to ensuring that we have. Uh, we want to make our workplace safe for all, all, our, all our staff and students, and that involves being safe from sexual harassment and, um, and sexism. It's harder to, to address the second one. You know, um, in some of the examples in Marcia's book I related to, having had um, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of comments, many of those comments made to me in my entire life, but I, I, I'm, uh, but the, we, we need to ensure that we have appropriate means for people to feel safe to report. And that's one of the reasons we've included the, um, uh, we've introduced a, an external complaints line to ensure that staff do feel that they can report incidences uh, of inappropriate behaviour without fearing about their job security. So that's a key thing. And uh, the other is um, really cultural in terms of ensuring that we have you know, good balance of both genders across all areas of the university and that we, you know, our universities reflect the broader society, not just in terms of gender, but also in terms of cultural diversity. And the better we get to that, the closer we get to that, the less the kind of power dynamics impact on that sort of sexist behaviour that Marcia describes in her book so eloquently. So with changes to policy and reduced funding and and the current events that we're all going through, Margaret, do we have a need for further changes in the culture of our universities beyond addressing sexism and bullying, do you think? And I mean, I'm hearing you talk a lot in this interview about culture. So 
Um, what, what are the steps that you're taking as a leader of the universe of your university in the wider sector for us all to develop our culture to be as fit as it can be to face the challenges of the future? Yeah, we, we've got a range of strategies both within QUT and, and I think that also need to, we need to look at as a sector. And some of that's around developing our own leaders rather than outsourcing it to others. The second is looking at the rewards and incentives. And, and what do we what do we actually reward in terms of promotion and leadership? And I've talked in uh, an earlier um, lecture that you were at, Martin, about the idea of rewarding mentorship and those that support uh, others. And that's that's really important in terms of developing the next generation and, and improving our culture. Then there's the capacity for people to feel safe, either through reporting or speaking up and so on. And that's got two parts to it. One is about creating a culture where people feel empowered to, um, to either report or, or comment on, on poor behaviour. But the second aspect to that is job insecurity. And so fundamentally, why am I afraid to speak out? Because I'm worried about my job. What's it going to do to my contract if I'm a sessional, if I'm on a limited term um, uh, position? And so we, I think we have to work in a clever way to address the job insecurities in our sector without, um, while still retaining the kind of flexibility that we, we need to respond to, to changes in the market or changes in, in, in funding. And that's, that's really complicated. And, um, but at, at its heart, um, it's, it's, you know, the more secure you are, the more able you are feel that you can, can speak up or speak out. And so we've got to look at all those aspects of our culture. The fact that you're taking the challenging times that we're on, we're all in head on, um, is also clear in our conversation, Margaret. I wonder if just in closing, I might ask you, are you enjoying the challenge of being a VC at QUT right now? Uh, well, Martin, it's, you know, you enjoy a leadership role because of the impact that you have on others, not because necessarily um, um, of the impact it has on yourself. But I guess one of the things that, you know, I took my time in terms of my leadership journey. I had some very early um, uh, promotions that meant that I was quite young when I went to the ARC and then I was able to take the time there and also had the opportunity to work with a, another great leader in Glen Davis at Melbourne. So that uh, by the time I, I joined QUT, I had a level of experience or what Gerald Sutton would call scars on the back that has enabled me to to work with the team to work through this. And I think I think if I'd been, this had happened earlier in my career, I, I wouldn't be enjoying it as, as much. Um, but I, could you say that, you know, enjoying restructuring and, and um, managing job losses and departures, no one enjoys that. That's really difficult. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And, um, and I admire the way that you're being so open about doing that. And so, for all of your comments in this conversation today, Margaret, for all of your leadership of the sector and your leadership of QUT and for your openness and, and being on the journey of trying to help change higher education for good, I'd like to particularly thank you for joining the HeadX podcast today. Thanks very much. Thank you, Martin. Well, that was interesting, Martin, wasn't it? Oh, I think, you know, she's hit so many of the issues on the head there. I mean, her observations that the issues in the sector have moved on from what now starts to feel like history of the 
immediate shock of loss of dollars and responses to that, the moves to doing everything online, the organizational changes that need to have happen. The fact that she sees QUT now in the rebuilding and recovery phase and the, and the focus is on morale and culture, I think is a sign of, uh, of the times. Yeah, yeah, and, and you asking her... Uh, if she's enjoying her role, and you know, and she's very clear about what she's there to do, you know, have a have an impact and help others, uh, sort of speaks to our earlier point, doesn't it? Well, I think so, and um, you know, this is we 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 should bear in mind that this is a university that's um had had traditionally been very well regarded in terms of one of the critical pillars of everything that we talk about, which is its brand position, its real world brand is 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 notorious for being very strong in the sector. And Margaret articulating that that needs to extend and is being extended more into their research profile is is good. They've just um, represented to the marketplace with a new brand commercial actually in this last week or so. Did you see that, Carl? I did see that. You know, as the CEO of the Brand Institute, we're forever students of brands and students of brand communication and advertising. And um, so I've been studying advertising and brand for a long time. So the the I'm about to go into an argument, actually a podcast argument about the type of brand. Um, advertisements required at the moment per sector. Now, with, in terms of this sector, I think this is a really powerful ad. I think the uh, existing brand equity of University for the Real World um, it does carry through really well here. And I think the choice of even some of the technical components like the tone of voice, so the tone of voice talent, uh, the pace of the ad, the way it was constructed, has set a really positive and um, you know, very encouraging sort of theme and mood to it. You know, the first thing I, when I see there, the better the advertising, the better the experience has to be. So, you know, when you set up an ad like that, then you go, wow, that's a, that's, that's a big promise. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that organisation deliver on it. You know, I was happy to see or hear um, Margaret talk about um, the culture work, you know, the, the, the fact that she's now sort of looking at culture. Because when we talk about advertising, we immediately go to experience yeah, you're making promises, promises that everything we do here is about the real world and pushing people forward. Well, the experience has to marry up with that. Now, the experience can't marry up with that unless the culture's in place. It doesn't matter what you do with anything else in the organisation, what you look like, what your leaders do and say. Look, leadership's one of the key components of culture, but it's certainly not the entirety of culture shaping. In fact, it's not even half of it. So I'm interested to see what they're doing beyond you know, what most organisations think they need to do and get into the nuts and bolts of culture shaping to marry into that expectation. Well, I th- I th- the, the, the need for her as a leader to um, lead by example in that regard and the importance of her symbolic gestures in that regard is something that she commented on. But I also found it interesting when I said, um, how did she think stakeholders were coping with the organisational change that she said... She said that she was perhaps not the best person to ask about the mood of the place at the moment. I think there's one of the things that I took from the interview is Margaret's actual care and compassion of understanding these issues are really important and that beyond her own judgments, it needs judgments of others to help her facilitate some of those thoughts. Mm. Well, what did she mean by that? Why does she think that she's not the best person to ask that question? Well, one of the most encouraging things that I took from her asking that and what I think she means by it is that I think for all leaders, we, we go through times of challenge and, and, and difficulty and troubled waters at different times, don't we? 
as, as a symptom of the organisational changes and decisions, tough decisions we're making? Well, I think it's fair to say that Margaret recognises that the extent and magnitude of the changes she's making at QUT are causing ripples in the organisation. And for her to be aware of that and recognise the, the, the fact that she needs to get a good measure of how others are feeling as a means of everyone putting their their shoulders to the wheel of bringing about change in culture is a very healthy sign for Margaret and for QUT. It's, a, it's even more than that, Martin. So in our study of the highest performing organisations, a lot of those being tech companies in the States, and when I say performing, I'm not just talking about shareholder return and and um, um, and financial performance, but actually, you know, cultural health and engagement were senior leaders that developed a great sense of trust, and they did this by being vulnerable. So, a lot of people think that you need to be, tr- you, you you can't be vulnerable until you tr- have trust. We actually develop trust by being vulnerable. So, this concept of having cues of belonging with the with the people, with the organisation, ex- expressing help and and you, who you are through that process helps people understand you and build um, bonds with you in a way that they can trust you be more vulnerable themselves actually deliver feedback in a high candor fashion so that you can then go about meaningful change so she's well and truly on her way there i agree i mean i i I don't know what i expected in setting up an interview with margaret but i think i was somewhat surprised with just how vulnerable she was prepared to be and how much care she was showing for the people that she was leading through change and how important she thought culture was. I I do know because she said it on the interview that she's um, got a lot of work going on in leadership development at the moment. But I think I heard her say, and we would certainly, I think, agree with her, that the intertwining of the shaping of culture in an organisation with the direct efforts in developing leaders through through, um, management training are two quite different things, but very much interdependent. Yes, I agree. So where do, you, where do you think they'll go from here, Martin? What do, you, what do you think the next sort of milestone will be for QUT? Well, I think um, her, she, she said it herself, uh, that she believes that having been three and a half years into leading the organisation, that the legacy, she, she's inherited a very strong brand with a high level of performance, with a long period of continuity. And she's looking to... To, to develop QUT for the next step through the most difficult times and sees that her legacy can be culture that aligns with that brand, aligns with that new strategy in a way that can really take QUT into the future. And I, I admire her for making that such a priority. Mm-hmm. And I think it will be really important what steps she puts in place to ensure that that culture advances and shapes in the most positive way. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.